those rich people always flying off somewhere. <laughs> hey everyone, welcome to the Vegan Vanguard. It's Mexi, and today we have a very special guest on the show. This is someone that I have looked up to quite a lot in the movement for quite some time. The one, the only Christopher Sebastian. So Christopher, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I am really thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my goodness. Yes. I was just saying off air that I'm just thrilled to be finally meeting you. Um, I mean, e-meeting you, I guess, because um, yeah, I was really excited to meet you at VegFest Calgary, Calgary and it didn't work out. Um, but yeah, this is just fantastic. So for anyone who's new or who doesn't know who Christopher is, Christopher Sebastian is a super rad, anti-oppressive, anti-speciesist activist, author, researcher, and lecturer. He is the founder of VGN. Uh, he's the director of social media for Peace Advocacy Network. He's on the advisory council for Encompass, uh, and he's a senior fellow at Sentient Media. And you can find all of his work at ChristopherSebastian.info and on Patreon, which you should definitely subscribe to because then you can join his live interactive lectures. Uh, and we'll put those in the in the description box below. Um, so I guess first off, you know, I guess, how are you? How are things in Prague, uh, you know, with this pandemic? Things are like, things are going pretty well for me personally here. Um, but like, obviously the rest of the world is falling apart. So like, it's, yeah. like you know, you take all of that in stride. Um, yeah. Like it's like one of the most difficult things for me, like I'm in a very privileged position because like I work from home, so I don't really have to go outside at all except for to walk the dog and maybe exercise a little. Mm -hmm. um, and I know everybody else can't really do that. Um, but like just looking at like how the pandemic has reshaped people's relationships with one another because people are seemingly falling along these like divided lines of like, you know, either you want to wear a mask or you don't want to wear a mask or mm -hmm. like you are willing to take a vaccine or you are not willing to take a vaccine. And mm -hmm. like just all of these really complex questions like converging in online spaces, which can be really toxic for communication because it's not the most ideal way to handle these discussions. It's mm -hmm. been tough. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like social media really d does us a, a big disservice because, um, you know, it kind of silos us into these communities where there's so many people who are only getting one kind of narrative fed to them. You know, they're only getting certain sources, certain kinds of information fed to them. And then it just creates these kind of in-group, weird, like in-group, out-group um, dynamics around things that, you know, affect us all and that are super important. So yeah, it's been kind of wild to watch this all unfold and we still have a while to go. So <laughs> yeah, that's the best part. Like, yeah, we still like, we still have so far to go. Like now, <laughs> like as of this week, we have like a couple of different, very promising vaccines. One of which was just like, you know, just released in the UK. Um, and the first few people or the first few thousand people have taken it. Um, and that's like only the beginning of the end. We still have like at least another like six to nine months of waiting before we see how this all like pans out. And so like, I don't right. imagine that it's going to like get much better before it gets at least a little bit worse. So 
yeah. I'm just kind of like holding all of my joy inside and um, yeah. trying to make it through the end of 2020. And not to be too doomerish, but even if we, you know, even after these six to nine months and we get, we're just talking about COVID here, right? We're not talking about like all of the future pandemics and crises that are likely to happen in this speciesist, capitalist, you know, I know right? society. Yeah. yeah. Hello, lovely people. I am jumping in before the rest of the interview to thank the new patrons who are supporting the continuation of this show this month. So thank you so much to Alex Masden, Kim, and Sean Michael, and as well to Liza and Dustin Ward, who both generously increased their pledges, and also to Sarah, who gave us a nice donation via PayPal. This is a donor-funded show. We rely on your support to keep the show going and to pay for things like transcripts, etc., which we're trying to do for all of our episodes. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a monthly patron donor at patreon.com slash veganvanguard or give us a one-time donation via PayPal on our website at veganvanguardpodcast.com. Please also rate and review us on iTunes or any other app that you listen to us on. That really does help to increase our reach, and it's another great way to support the show. Okay, well, uh, let's just dive into the the main topic. So yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled that uh, you came on today. I just have so much that I um, wanted to get your take on and just wanted to hear you speak on. And I think that our audience will really benefit from it. Um, so the first few questions are kind of, um, you know, kind of an overview. Um, I think we do talk about this stuff on our show, but I think it would be just wonderful to hear you speak on this. Um, so the first question is, you know, there's a lot of vegans who are not leftists and there's a lot of leftists who are not vegan, who still kind of balk at this idea that speciesism is in any way directed to white supremacy or is an outgrowth of it. Um, so could you explain the links that you see between the two and how this idea of human as a political identity has been and continues to be shaped by whiteness? Absolutely. Like that is one of my favorite things to talk about. My favorite, I mean, least favorite. Um, because of course, just as you pointed out, like, you know, like it's, it's so uncomfortable for everyone on all sides. And so ultimately what happens is everyone hates you. Um, like mm -hmm. all of the leftists who are not vegan and all of the like vegans who are not leftists, like, you know, everyone wants to distance themselves from this relationship that like that, that, that human like people say human supremacy like i talk about human exceptionalism has with white supremacy and i'm like this is such an overt and obvious thing um that like the fact that we want to avoid talking about it should actually tell us a lot more about like why we should be talking about it because ultimately what what human exceptionalism is and like you know what like what speciesism is it's a form of discrimination against other animals like you know it, it checks all of the boxes the so the the psychology of racism like the psychology of like sexism and misogyny like it's not like exactly overlaid but like when you are looking at like all of the distinctions of a form of discrimination and or bigotry against another marginalized group yeah it it kind of fits there Mm -hmm. And like, you know, and the way that it interacts with white supremacy is very overt as well. Um, like, I know that other scholars like talk about this and I'm not the only one, obviously. Um, but when I actually started looking at it, one of the like one of the most certain points in our history of Western civilization that I think um, really illustrates this or really fomented um, these ideologies as like as as something that like you know has a definitive relationship with one another was like the Enlightenment era uh, philosophy when you have all of these like amazing wonderful thinkers who are talking about what it actually means to be human and what human rights should um, actually look like in a quote civilized society 
And mm-hmm. like when you are laying down the groundwork for what it means to be human, that is what it means to actually create human as a political identity. Um, because scientifically, what we actually know is that human is just one of many species of animal on this planet. But we don't actually think of ourselves as animals. I've talked to countless people who actually balk at the idea, who actually say to me, well, I've never heard of that. Like, of course, humans are not animals. And I'm like, wow, you (laughs) definitely did not pass seventh grade biology. And it's like, you know, like, but this is just like, this this just illustrates to me, like, you know, how deeply entrenched these ideologies are. because of course humans are animals, but when we create human as a political identity, what we simultaneously do is create animal as a political identity and not just a species classification. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, you know, and when we set up this binary, everyone who does not fall into the neat little um, perfect box of what's considered human, they exist on the spectrum as an animal. And so you see the animalization of black people, you see the animalization of any marginalized group Um, or any group that we desire to marginalize. And that's occurred several times throughout history. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, so yeah, like, you know, that's, that's, that's what, that's one of the driving things that I want people to, to take away from these conversations or what I want people to understand. Um, Mm -hmm. Human was actually never something that was meant to include in particular us as black people. And Mm -hmm. like, you know, and like human was just a, like a distinction that was meant to be like that was meant to include primarily like people who were white male straight landowning um heterosexual and like you know and like you know and 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 like had all of their abilities and so that's mm-hmm. that's really you know that's that's really what we are like that's really what we're talking about and if you don't meet these like qualifications if you don't meet these criteria then like you are somehow considered to be less than and that's where the animalization starts to creep in Right. And so, like, yeah, like this, this sort of aspirational humanity um, is something that I see people working toward over and over again in Black liberation movements. We're always talking mm-hmm. about, like, you know, I'm a human being. Like, you know what? I deserve mm-hmm. these rights as a human without ever critically interrogating what it means to be human or why human was considered someone like, you know, a person who is deserving of rights and not all of these other citizens that we share the planet with. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, that is one of our, like, one of our fundamental problems. And Mm -hmm. unless and until we actually include other persons in our frame of reference of who is, like, a marginalized community, like, I think that is going to continue to, like, to to keep us back instead of, like, you know, actually embracing um, solidarity with other marginalized species, we instead continue to perpetuate the perceived exceptionalism of human and why mm-hmm. that's so good. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think like under capitalism, it becomes even more pernicious because, you know, not only is uh, animal considered less than, it's also considered property in so many ways, right? Um, and so then obviously if you're, you know, trying to, um, you know, animalize people that you want to view as less than or you want to other then it takes on like a whole another kind of pernicious um, angle when you kind of bring in kind of like the commodity and property relationship. Property is actually such a big deal. Like, you know, when we when we actually talk about this, like I actually bring up the philosopher John Locke very frequently in mm-hmm. um, presentations that I do because like he's a primary example of what I'm talking about when I talk about 
about human rights and like, you know, and like, and what it means to be human. Um, like, you know, Locke talks about like what our natural rights are um, and our natural rights as conferred to us by natural law, which is conferred mm -hmm. to us by God himself. And so therefore, like, what are our, like, what are our rights, you know, like, our right to life, liberty, um, and like the pursuit of happiness, like, you know, like, I'm paraphrasing here, but of course, like, that's something that's enshrined in the American um, Declaration of Independence. But, but mm -hmm. yeah, like, you know, no one should be harmed in their per pursuit of like, you know, of property as well. Um, and so when you talk about capitalism, and again, like, you know, I have to reference other people that have written about this long before I came along. David Niver talks about this in his book, Animal Oppression and Capitalism. Um, it's literally called Animal Oppression and Capitalism. Definitely look it up. But like, you know, the acquisition of property and like who is considered property, like, you know, that is like that goes hand in hand with like animal oppression um, and it, like, you know, and like the rise of mercantile capitalism and around the same time that all of these great thinkers were actually cementing their place in our like history of Western civilization isn't accidental. Like, mm -hmm. you know, when we're talking about the acquisition of land, part of the purpose of that, part of that project was the acquisition of land for the rearing of cattle. Mm -hmm. um, and so, like, you know, and so you have all of these, like, you know, all of these touchstones in, in, in history that, like, you know, that connect these dots for us. And so when we actually look back at it, it's like, you know what, actually releasing animals other animals from that property status is fundamental to dis, like dismantling like the project of capitalism. Um, and a lot of us, unfortunately, on the left, and I do consider myself the leftist, really don't want to sit in the discomfort of that reality because that means actually releasing the stranglehold that we have on everyone else in the animal kingdom. And a lot of us, unfortunately, I hate saying it, but like, you know what, drag me in the DMs, drag me like, you know, on Twitter, <laughs> because that's where people go to do the dragging. It's so like, you know, it's, it's fine, but like, you can't escape the fundamental reality that like, yeah, like, you know what, a lot of us aren't actually looking for total liberation. A lot of us are actually looking for a better place on the hierarchy. And mm. like, you know, and with that reality, like, I can't get with that. Like, I want liberation for everyone. Like, you know, yeah. irrespective of our species membership. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was so well said. Um, so my next question is, you know, it can be kind of difficult to talk about the connections between racism and speciesism because that can kind of come across as though you're comparing the plight of marginalized people to that of animals. Um, so I'm wondering, how do you go about approaching conversations about the connections that you see between black liberation and animal liberation? A couple of things really, like, you know, number one, like I actually tried to talk to people instead of, um, in terms of comparisons, in terms, instead of, of origins. Mm. Um, like, you know, where, where did this, where did this particular attitude originate? Um, like, you know, why do we feel the way that we do? Why does, like, you know, why does talk of animal liberation in, like, you know, in conjunction with black liberation inspire feelings of anxiety, anger, like antagonism, like, you know, why do you feel the way that you do? Let's talk about like, you know, where this comes from, where this came from. Mm -hmm. um, and like, and that usually reframes the conversation for people. Um, and like, you know, and this is the other thing, like when, when I'm having conversations, like a lot of people don't feel invited into the conversation. 
99% of the time when I talk to people, they don't really respond like, you know, with that same level of vitriol um, or with that anger. Um, advantageously for me, usually when I'm talking about it, it's in a classroom setting where people have already given their consent to be there. They already know the topics that we're going to be talking about. They already understand the need for sensitivity. And like, you know, we're going to be talking about things that are going to be difficult topics. Um, but like even outside of the classroom, invite people into the conversation. I'm really not a fan of like, you know, the folks like who kind of like jump people on the street who are, weren't already prepared for this dialogue. They were just yeah. going to the grocery store, minding their business, waiting for the bus. And it's like a guy with a microphone and a camera just jumped in your face and said, hey, I want to talk to you about speciesism. You never even heard that term before. Like, you know, so, <laughs> so yeah, like for me, like, you know, like, like it's, it's uncomfortable, but like, you know, when you frame the conversation around origins instead of like, you know, comparisons, that mm -hmm. like that, puts people into a different mindset that is more receptive to like having that dialogue. And then you talk about like the academic, like, you know, like foundations of this, um, the dreaded comparison. I actually have that book on my website is one of the recommended books that I like, you know, that I tell people is one of the resources that I use frequently. Like it is like, you know, it's, it's a very clear cut example of, um, of these conversations and of these origins. And like, you know, like you can't have, or you would not have been able to have the transatlantic slave trade um, without like animal agriculture. Um, you would not have been able to use these tools on black people without using them first on animals. You would not have chattel slavery, at least not in the same way. Um, and maybe people can argue that like, oh yes, we would have, or like whatever. Well, uh, perhaps, but guess what? That's not what happened. You're presenting mm -hmm. a counterfactual. Factually speaking, historically speaking, like, you know, this is exactly what happened. And so the animalization of black people and the like, you know, the, the creation of the political animal itself is all tied to like these philosophies and these ideologies of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. um, so, so like, you know, like when we actually have conversations about these origins, then people are like, okay, like, you know, I can see where this comes from and why this is relevant and why this is important and why and how my liberation is tied up to that of other persons um, that I share this planet with. And like, you know, and why it's important to like investigate how we can gain their freedom as well. And like, and also it's really encouraging that like, you know, we're like, this isn't brand new. Like black people have actually been working toward animal liberation all throughout American history um, and in the history of Western civilization. Like, you know, it's not an either or, um, even though lots of people like to present it that way, it's a both and. Um, and like, of course, like this is now a very familiar example, but like, I remember five or six years ago, nobody was talking about this. I'm like, holy smokes, the MOVE organization, a black liberation group in Philadelphia, like my hometown was actually like, you know, deeply, deeply invested in animal liberation. And that scared the state. The state yeah. apparatus actually, like they, the one thing that the state apparatus cannot stand or will not tolerate is solidarity between marginalized groups. Keeping everyone isolated is how oppression thrives. Recognizing our need for solidarity is when we become most successful. And that scared the state so bad that they actually burned those people alive because they were not able to tolerate that affront to their power structure and that's like you know that is the that's that's the unfortunate history of like of black liberation and animal liberation or that's part of our history in the mm -hmm. united states and like and we minimize that we, we we trivialize that i hear black liberation activists all the time talk about the move organization and how radical they were and still mm -hmm. are 
and like and completely erase their like you know their very pro animal position and pro animal origins and mm -hmm. so like you know and so like we contribute to this rewriting of history we contribute to our own like you know our own like enslavement and our own marginalization when we don't like when we when we don't look at these things through in holistic lens um, that, that actually captures all of the importance of like of all of the things that we needed to cover. Um, and I point that out to people and like and most of the time, almost universally, people like, you know, people appreciate it. Um, so it's about approaching people the right way and, mm -hmm. and helping them to make these connections in a way that resonates for them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was revisiting um, one of your lectures online on, I think, race, class, and um, I can't remember exactly the title, but um, race, class, and species. Like race. I stole that, by the way, from Angela Davis because of her early book, like women, um, women, race, class, and so like I, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, so cool. Yeah. Well, it was so great. So I'll link that below as well for everyone to check out. But yeah, in it, you made the point that. Um, you know, it's not me making the comparison between marginalized people and animals, right? Like it's the colonial white supremacist system who is making that comparison and I'm just pointing it out. <laughs> um, and I'm pointing it out to you to, to show you that, you know, there's so much to be gained in, uh, you know, solidarity here, right? That's true. And, and of course, like, you know what, like outside of the one-on-one -on -one experiences or the classroom experiences, when you put this out there on the internet, the internet is where all of the heat comes. Like that's where people get real big mad. Um, right. And again, it's, it's people from both sides because like, you know, just even a couple of weeks ago, I had done um, a presentation called White Meat, um, which I started doing this actually in Berkeley early this year at the United Poultry Concerns um, Compassionate um, Eating Conference. And uh, like, and and boy, like you know what? If you want to talk about things that that actually make um, vegan non-leftists get in get in get in their feelings, um, it is it's recognizing <laughs> it's recognizing these connections because they like they really did not like the fact that like you know that 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 this, this is actually hurting our like our vegan activism. The fact that we don't recognize the way that like animal exploitation is not only celebrated but often um very much like it's 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 actually part of white national identity um mm -hmm. and if you are a conservative vegan um like you know then then this isn't something that's very fun for you but i'm just pointing it out <laughs> i'm just pointing it out and like you know like i actually like when i had done this presentation a couple of weeks ago um like yeah like you know there was one woman after it was over with she said i don't like that you made this political i did not enjoy this at all oh um God. i'm a vegan republican and like you know and like you know and i don't i don't like this and i said did you actually pay attention to not just the whole presentation but the very third slide that like you know that that was actually an image um like a screenshot of an article from Mike.com saying that like milk is the creamy new symbol of white supremacy in Donald Trump's <laughs> America. And like, you know, and you've got this, like you've got this photograph of a bunch of shirtless white men guzzling gallon jugs of milk um, yeah. to like, you know, to, to articulate their like white nationalist sentiments and like their genetic, perceived genetic superiority. And so like, you know, I'm not the person who has politicized this. I'm not the person who has mm -hmm. racialized this. They racialized it. And like, you know, and I'm merely drawing your attention to it. And part mm -hmm. of like dismantling the project of speciesism is to like, you know, is, is to recognize that it has been like racialized as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and you're sitting here like before God and, and all and telling me that like, I, you don't like the fact that I have 
like I've racialized this or like I've politicized this. And I'm like, I didn't do that. Yeah. I didn't, you have to talk to your people. You yeah. have to talk. I didn't do that. <laughs> you wasted an hour of your life sitting here listening to me. Yeah. And you didn't even like, and you didn't even hear anything that I said because you were like, that, like that's, that's what we're facing right now. And so I'm like, yeah, yeah like I'm, I'm the messenger and y'all right. have shotguns. And I'm like, wow, that's just, this is just, okay. Uh, it's so true. I I love that, that, you know, oh, don't make this political, right? Especially from Republican vegans. It's like, first of all, you're going to go out and talk about cognitive dissonance to other people and not realize oh. the cognitive dissonance in Man. the politics that you espouse and what you're fighting for. It's so but, real. Um, and like, you know, just like the, like the, the way that <laughs> I know, like, oh, so my computer's being loud. I apologize for that. But like, but like, I just like I don't know like it doesn't like it doesn't frustrate me. I actually find it really really interesting um, when when this happens. Like you know, especially when you actually talk very explicitly about like about like conservatism and like you know and progressivism or like leftism. However you want to talk about these things or however you want to like frame them. Um, like it's like what one of the things that I find fascinating is that like this has become or it always has been, but like it's been accelerated in I would say the past decade, this has become one of the fronts in the culture war. Mm -hmm. And what I find fascinating about culture wars is that like, they're almost always started by the right. People, people tend to think of the culture wars as something that the left initiates, but like, listen, mm -hmm. like trans people have been going to the bathroom all this time. They've always been going to the bathroom. It only became a problem when 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 people wanted to legislate that in the United States. Like that's that's when it became a so like this culture war was initiated by people who wanted to stop something that has absolutely been going on since people have been going to public toilets. Mm -hmm. Like so like and and the same thing with like you know with 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 veganism, with animal rights and with like animal liberation. Like this is a front in the culture war that like from that one example and many, many more that has been initiated by people on the right. And so like, and so like the perception that like people on the left have actually been like creating these culture wars is not true. We get dragged into and fight culture wars because they have been started. And we don't even recognize the power that we have in actually uniting and resisting these fights that have been started by someone else. Because if we actually stopped and said like, hey, what we're actually doing is making ourselves even further complicit in white supremacist institutions by fighting for the right to exploit someone else's bodily autonomy. And that we should actually stop doing that, but we don't want to. Mm -hmm. We instead become like, we become conservatives ourselves. My God, like the number of times that I've read comments from people online that like, you know, that like they sound like absolute died in the wool Republicans and they start like, you know, coming up with all of their rationalizations and like, you know, and excuses for animal exploitation um, and wanting to continue it, not trying to dismantle it or recognizing that like these are the like, you know, challenges that are in place, but just being so angry at the idea that like we should actually grant someone else bodily autonomy and not let and not have species membership being a barrier it it like it infuriates people and that's their bigotry like that's their bigotry and and and, and like you know and prejudice coming out mm -hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think another great example of, you know, the culture war with respect to animal, you know, ag and animal oppression coming from the right is, you know, all this talk about soy boys and all the rest, like it's very patriarchal, right? So, you know, of course, the Trump administration, I mean, there's people, you know, I'm, I'm here in Canada. So there's a ton of people in Alberta who are kind of just making the case that like, you know, eating meat is manly and, you know, uh, the left wants to take your meat and you're going to all turn into soy boys whenever. So it's it's just so much of that kind of crap um, is thrown at us from the right. And then we're like, hey, what the hell is going on here? Right. <laughs> you try to you try to point it out. Um, and then there's so much pushback. Um, but, yeah, I think that was really well said. Yeah. So then I wanted to ask, uh, you know, how do you see, you know, what are what are some of the ways in which racism and bigotry still pervade uh, vegan activism, even even kind of in spaces that consider themselves leftist? Oh, boy. Um, like that's how much time do we have here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like like it's 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 incredibly like it's incredibly difficult to talk about because there are so many examples that like just looking for like one or two. Um, that would be indicative of the condition of vegan activism right now is like is difficult. Um, like, like I will refer to presentations over and over again, like during this conversation. Uh, but like, but this is there was one that I had done actually very recently because my background is in um, in journalism and media theory, mm-hmm. and like you know, and so like having conversations about misinformation is actually near and dear to my heart, and so trying to integrate like media theory and like and the fight against disinformation and disinformation campaigns into my animal rights activism is something that I try to do as often as possible um because like that's that's something that is relatable to a lot of people especially right now living in this quote post truth universe that we are in um and yeah like when i when when i actually look at the landscape right now there are so many disinformation campaigns that are being waged um within within vegan activism and we like and we buy into it um we we believe like a lot of things that are absolutely not true things that are like part of conventional wisdom that we just like you know that that just sound right um over mm-hmm. or sound correct over and over again because they've been repeated um like enough times mm-hmm. and that does us a material harm um it does us a material harm because we we don't we're we're not actually we're not actually looking for the truth we're actually just looking for things to support our arguments um mm-hmm. one of the ways that like this has manifested like i'll just give you the example of like homelessness um <clears throat> excuse me, there um, were vegan activists like um, a couple of years ago. Um, I'm sure that it still goes on, but like you know, actually like just last year, but time has all moved, melded together for me yeah. in the universe now, <laughs> like in the coronavirus universe. Yeah. Um, there's no there's no yesterday or last year. It's all the same amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were vegan activists that had actually taken um, a dog away from a homeless person. Um, there were actually a couple of examples of this. Um, there, one of them was a couple of years ago, but this one was, um, was within the past like nine months. Mm-hmm. Um, one I think was in, uh, the United States. Um, one, uh, another one was actually in, uh, France. This one was actually in, um, I believe England, the one that I'm thinking of right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but like taking dogs away from homeless people, um, is like, it's, it's 
Like, it, that's incredibly heartbreaking to me as yeah. a person who had previously experienced homelessness myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, you know, I didn't have like another family member of a different species at the time that I was experiencing homelessness. But if I did, like, you know, having someone take my family member away from me and breaking up my family would be incredibly devastating, mm-hmm. if not outright traumatizing to me. Um, And that's an example of white saviorism. No one actually wanted to interrogate, how can I make this family situation better? They immediately saw an animal. um, And in this particular situation, it was an animal like that, like, you know, that was a family member of a Roma person um, Mm -hmm. who like, who also go by travelers. And so like, um, so yeah, like they, they just took it upon themselves to take this dog away from them and Mm -hmm. then actually post pictures online saying like you know what oh i gotta take this dog someplace they were out in the heat and like you know this person um like you know was not taking very good care of them and like thankfully there were a couple of people in the comments who were saying like well did you actually check on the person yeah. Um, you know, like, or like, you know, like, this is like, you know, like, like, did you, did you actually, what, why did you just take this dog away from someone mm-hmm. without knowing anything about their situation, the relationship that they had with one another? Mm-hmm. Um, and like, you know, and, and feel justified in that action. Mm-hmm. Um, but overwhelmingly the comments were positive and they were like, oh, you did a really great thing. Um, and I'm like, wow, this is like, this is bananas that this is something that actually took place and that people are applauding as, as an overall good thing. Um, the truth about homelessness is actually like, you know, like it's incredibly complex. Um, and like, you know, and it's, it's difficult to talk about. Like there's actually a story in Montreal last winter, um, of a person who froze to death with their dog, um, because they would not be admitted to a homeless shelter um, with an animal. And rather than leave their family member outside Mm -hmm. in the cold, that Mm -hmm. person chose to stay out there with them and died and died. Like we would like, we, we don't like actually take the time. And this is, this is what people mean when they say white supremacy. Um, When, when we say like white savior complex in veganism, Mm-hmm. Um, because we don't actually stop to look at holistically what is going on. Um, mm-hmm. What is the situation here? A minimum of 10% of people who experience homelessness have companion animals. And like in some major urban centers, that number swells to, swells to 25%. Mm-hmm. That's a quarter of the homeless population in a given major metropolitan city, like actually has a companion animal. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, and when we construct like, you know, our activism around, like, around these strict binaries of animal rights versus, like, mm-hmm. homeless rights or, like, or, or whatever, like, you know, we are not, like, we're, we're not actually looking at the bigger picture of making a better society for everyone involved. And we're doing damage to the mm-hmm. animals that we want to protect, along with doing damage to humans. Um, fortunately, there like you know like some shelters have actually taken strides to be more inclusive, um, because they recognize the need for not separating families, um, mm-hmm. and like regardless of what your family may look like, and this has larger consequences for like everyone who has like you know non traditional family members. Like the nuclear family structure is itself like a white supremacist construct. Multi generational families happen in so many cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, Families of different types happen in so many cultures. Like my family includes my dog, um, like, you know, who has been with me for two years and I couldn't imagine my life without him. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And like, you know, and and so yeah, like, you know, like trying to like come up with I hate saying it, white solutions to like, you know, to to problems of white supremacy, it's always yeah. going to do us a harm. It's going to do us a material harm. And that harm usually like plays out um like the in, in a way that not just hurts animals, but black and brown people too. Look yeah. at the adoption rates for like, you know, for, for animals and shelters, um, like going to black and brown families. Like, could mm-hmm. we not actually minimize like homelessness among like companion animals if we make it easier for people like, you know, of different backgrounds to adopt? Um, mm-hmm. We probably could. Um, so, so yeah, like that's that's just, one of many examples that like I've talked way too much on. I apologize. Oh no, I could listen to you talk about this like all day, right? Like <laughs> I think that that example is so interesting because yeah, it's like these white saviors that are, um, you know, humanizing the animal while animalizing the human, right? And then not having any gripes or not seeing any contradictions there. Not or... seeing any contradictions. <laughs> yeah. It's wild. It's wild. It's wild. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, as you said, there's so many examples that, you know, I see every day. Um, so it very much pervades, um, our activism and well, I mean, not our, but I guess like the mainstream approach and even in some leftist spaces, I think people aren't making these broad connections as, as much as they could be. Um, but you pointed out uh, on Instagram that uh, the three or three of the largest vegan or- organizations in the U S uh, don't have any black board members. Um, so could you speak a bit to why a, a race neutral approach to vegan activism, um, particularly online is so damaging and ineffective? I sure will. Um, like I, I know exactly which um, post you're talking about. That was mm-hmm. actually like in response to like, you know, some of some that, that post that you're describing was actually in response to some people who were take, trying to take a race neutral approach, um, which is absolutely a mistake. Um, especially if you believe in like the, like the, the theory of effective altruism, um, like, you know, which like, just like as a baseline, and I'm going to completely bastardize this by paraphrasing it, effective altruism is like, you know, what is the most cost effective way to help as many, like, you know, marginalized persons as possible and applying like, you know, these principles to animal activism, um, you know, how do we help the most animals um, that we can, like, you know, with, mm-hmm. in the most cost effective way? Um, with the resources that we've got and how do we do this, like, you know, like organizationally and individually. Um, And of course there are some wonderful solutions that come out of this, but like also like, you know, trying to take a race neutral approach is, um, is, is an absolute abject failure. When we recognize that in the United States and I use the United States as an example, because of course that's where I'm from. And so like naturally that is where like, you know, most of my experiences are, although like, you know, I have had, I, I've got plenty of um, experiences in other places as well. And I'm living in Eastern Europe right now as we speak. But um, I shouldn't say Eastern Europe. I should say Central Europeans. Because, <laughs> like, the people in the Czech Republic take, take umbrage to being called Eastern European. They're going to knock on my door very shortly. But, um, <laughs> like, you know, like, black and brown people in the United States are actually going vegan at twice the rate of, like, you know, our white counterparts. Mm. And... If that's the case, why in the world does our activism not reflect this? Why are we not actually making it easier for those populations? This is going vegan despite all of the like challenges that actually stand in our way. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the structural and systemic challenges that have been put up that like you know that would otherwise prevent us from doing so. Nonetheless, 
like you know what the data actually support this that like that that black and brown people are actually going vegan at faster rates than our white counterparts and yet no one has reimagined like to a large degree their like you know their their online strategies their like in person strategies for connecting with these people based on what we know the data to be. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I find that to be like a huge limitation. So like, you know, because people are trying to take a race neutral approach, oh, we don't want to talk about race or we don't want to integrate. If you don't want to talk about it, that's fine. But like not recognizing that it's there and like implementing strategies to like, you know, to, to actually examine it or to actually be more inclusive is a failure that is an institutional failure on our part. Um, and especially since like everything that we know in particular about online marketing, and this is where the media theory comes in, like with social media, like black people are absolutely taking over in certain spaces. Like, you know, like black Twitter is an absolute thing. We absolutely know that like engagement on black Twitter like outpaces our white counterparts. We know that like black people um, on Twitter actually like post far more frequently we're not actually taking advantage of that as much as we should be we're not taking advantage mm -hmm. of the like you know of the opportunities that are are afforded to us by social media um we're not taking advantage of all of the marketing that exists that like indicates that black people are like are not just like market trendsetters mm -hmm. but we're actually brand loyal as well and so when like when when vegan brands actually come out with new products actually gearing their marketing campaigns toward black and brown people would be a smart a smart strategy and yet we don't do that mm -hmm. um and so like you know and in terms of like us being market trendsetters how many trends have we seen online that have been started by the black community the fact that black twitter is itself a thing like we don't talk about white Twitter, do we? Like there's not a conversation about white Twitter. Like, you know, like that's like that's real. Um, and when you look at the research done by uh, people like uh, Dr. Sophia Noble, um, who wrote Algorithms of Oppression, she's a remarkable professor and that's a fantastic book. Like, you know, mm -hmm. black people are some of the most adaptable people online, um, learning new technology at rates that outpaces a lot of other demographic groups. And so like, you know, the failure to capture that is a failure of um, animal rights and of like animal liberation um, organizations or vegan organizations. And so that's a, that is a crying shame. And it's all steeped in like, you know, like it's all, it, there's nothing new under the sun. It's all steeped in these ideas of like appealing to the most moderate quote voices or like, you know, the, the, the white moderate, which we've known since the 1960s, God love Martin Luther King is mm -hmm. one of the greatest stumbling blocks to black liberation. It is also a stumbling block to Afro, to like animal liberation as well. Um, because we're like, we're appealing to people who essentially like, you know, are, are not our strongest demographic or who are not the change. You don't like, you're not, you're not going to be a change maker if you're a moderate person. You're mm -hmm. just middle of the road. Like that's like, you know, like that's like that. Those are the people who have the least broad appeal. Um, mm -hmm. And we keep trying to flatten out our strategies and turn them into one dimensional things that appeal to what we perceive to be the most important person in the room because mm -hmm. they're white and middle class. And that's like, you know, and that's that's just not the way to go. We mm -hmm. need more radical solutions and we need to actually give more leeway to the more radical parts of like, but this again, this just speaks to my broader politics, doesn't it? So like, of course, I'm going to say that as this like rampaging leftist who thinks that people shouldn't die of like not having health care and have a livable wage. That's, 
wacky pants. Like who who would think such things? <laughs> me going around saying things again. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I, I think I don't know. I, I I don't know that much about effective altruism, but. Um, to me, it seems like an approach that is really focused around, you know, making the most money and then contributing that money towards the problem, right? Um, so it's also this capitalist solution that I think, you know, I, th I think a lot of the major um, vegan organizations um, are very interested in promoting this kind of you know, consumerist um, capitalist approach to solving or to, you know, promoting animal liberation. Um, and so I'm, I'm sure that kind of plays in because, you know, like white supremacist capitalism, it, it, it doesn't want to, um, like if that's your approach and it, if these big organizations are run by these, you know, white businessmen basically, um, then, you know, black liberation and actual like anti-speciesist action kind of, it, it destabilizes your power and privilege as this, you know, big white businessman, right? So I think a lot of those organizations, right, uh, that would just be kind of antithetical to um, them maintaining their their power, right? Absolutely. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier, like, you know what, a lot of us are not invested in actual liberation, we're invested in jockeying for a better position on the hierarchy. And that is what I think that a lot of these organizations are doing. Mm -hmm. um, like this isn't this isn't easy work. Um, we want really easy solutions to things that are incredibly complex. And like, and people get on me all the time. It's like, oh, you're complicating it, you're making it so much harder. It's like, you know what? This isn't this this isn't easy. This isn't fun. Yeah. Like the amount of reading that I had to sit down and do and learn about like capitalism and socialism and like all like you know and communism and all of these other isms that like you know the people like poorly understand. Like that's not a fun place to like find yourself in. But like learning and understanding theory is fundamental to like you know executing these things in like you know in in activist spaces. So like you know like mm -hmm. theory and and actual practice go hand in hand. Um, but people really don't care about that. Like, you know, like mm -hmm. we, we're very attached to like finding those fast solutions. And again, as you rightfully pointed out, like, you know, that's a very, that's a very white thing to do. Um, mm -hmm. Like, and it's unfortunate and I don't want to come down on anybody, but like, you know, like this is, this is the part where I say, I don't want to come down on anybody and yeah. come down on people. Um, <laughs> but I really don't, but like, you know, I look at all of these like food startups and like, you know, and how people are like, are saying like, oh, like, you know, we have to like come up with all of these burgers and hot dogs and, and chicken nuggets and all of these wonderful things um, because we don't have time for people to learn about theory and like, and, and do this the hard way. We have to do it the easy way. We have to appeal to people's taste buds because we can't appeal to their sense of compassion. And like, you know, and like, and I recognize the value of that. Like, I don't think that this is an either or situation. Like, you know, like mm -hmm. I said, there's no, there's a, not a magic bullet. I'm not saying that like, you know, I like, you know, I have cornered the market on this and like, if everybody did things in my way, then we would, we would, we would win tomorrow. Um, but like, but yeah, like, like that's all well and good. And I appreciate like, listen, I'm going to eat all the burgers and hot dogs and ice cream that can, you can throw at me. <laughs> yeah. I'm definitely going to do that. I'm here for all of these wonderful products, but actually painting that as the primary way that we should be like, you know, that we should approach this is again, like that's a mistake. And it's also a historical, like, you know, mm -hmm. like we, we have to actually concede that 
Like, you know, the, the reality is that, like, the radical people actually have been making a difference time and time again. Like, you, like, I, I understand that, like, people will make the argument that, like, oh, like, you know, we've implemented these incremental solutions at different points in history to, like, you know, to, like, make the situation of marginalized groups better, whether we're talking about women or, like, white women or, like, you know, black women or, um, <clears throat> or any other marginalized group, including animals. And so, like, you know, and so we look at those as successes and like, and I'm, I'm fine with that. But the fact that you were able to implement those incremental solutions actually comes in large part due to the work of very radical people. Because mm -hmm. if you don't have someone who is like, you know, who's shouting from the rafters that this is an absolute atrocity. Like, if you don't have those people in place who are saying that, like, no, actually working a 16-hour day until you're, like, you know, until your your bones actually start to fall apart is, like, is is actually wrong. It is, like, you know, it's distasteful. Um, mm. It is criminal. It is immoral. Um, like, if you don't have these radical people who are, like, you know, who, who are actually pushing for widespread, broad, systemic changes those incremental changes were never going to take place anyway so like you know you like you get what you ask for like you know and if you don't ask for it then you're not going to like you know then you're you're, you're not going to get anything at all and so like if, mm -hmm. if i'm like you know if, if i'm an incremental person who's saying like you know what larger larger cages um is, is what we're actually all about yeah. that's, that's what we want and like you know, and if like just imagine if everybody in the movement was saying larger cages and like, yeah. you know what then they make larger cages and then we're going to come back in, in six more months and say just a little bit bigger just yeah a little bit bigger and like you know and maybe <laughs> a walk outside of your prison cell once a day that's what we're that's what we're all about that's yeah that's going that's that's absurd that is completely yeah. absurd you know what happens you've got people who are absolutely saying no abolish this this is bullshit <laughs> like this is absurd and yeah. i'll tell you what happens is like you know the people who are like you know who are trying to see the middle ground will say well we don't want to get rid of it all together how about like you know we take an appeasement gesture and again like this is all historical like when you look at mm -hmm. like you know the history of like you know of 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 like social theory when you look at like you know marx and like and the frankfurt school when you look at like you know all of these different like people who have actually taken approaches to social theory like this absolutely pans out like you know mm -hmm. the ruling class has to make some sort of negotiation with the working class in order for like you know for change to take place mm -hmm. um and like you know and the working class is coming to a ruling class with pitch with pitchforks and torches and guillotines mm -hmm. and so it's like okay an eight-hour workday yeah <laughs> like that's that's what happens it's not like it's not i'm sorry to say that it's not joe biden coming along and saying you know oh what? god <laughs> you know i don't think the medicare for all is the way i think that we should lower the <laughs> the age from like from from 65 to 62 how about that like, yeah. not, like and then everybody said oh that's freaking brilliant why didn't like you know like that's that's not what happens like so, yeah. <laughs> So like yeah like and and yeah this can be applied to the animal rights movement as well like the radical people actually have like you know with our sweeping changes we have like you know the 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 grand ideas and you know and, and we may get those ideas implemented or we may get incremental change but I'll tell you what we're not going to get jack doodoo if like you know if we're just sitting around and saying like hey everybody everybody calm down mm -hmm. you're too you're too scary you're too yeah. scary yeah. let's let's all just get on the same page and let's all just say three more centimeters how about that yeah, that's yeah. our chance that's our chance <laughs> like that's what so, yeah so yeah like you know like you know like and and that all that that again ties into capitalism because like 
because again, like, you know, like to bring this back to the, the point that I was making about people who are making all of these wonderful products and everything. Sure, I want the products and like, you know, and I'm happy to have them. But like, mm -hmm. let's not ignore the reality that like most of us can actually live on a completely plant-based diet right now. And mm -hmm. we don't need another goddamn burger in order to do it. We've got mm -hmm. burgers coming out of our asses here. Like, you know, yeah. like, this is, like what, how many burgers do we need before <laughs> like we actually stop and say, okay, we're just actually creating new products on the market and it's lining people's pockets. Like yeah. the projections as they exist right now all indicate that like animal consumption is actually going to peak over the next 10 years before it even thinks about falling. So mm -hmm. I don't know what you all think you're doing other than making rich people even richer. Like mm -hmm. that's like, that's, that's the situation that we're looking at. And I know that's unpopular to say, I like the fucking mm -hmm. burgers too. I want the burgers, but like, but really like, you know, <laughs> on the ground, like this is me, like, you know, like saying like, I'm going to eat this, but at the same time, Y'all are just like, y'all are wilding out. So that's, yeah. my, that's my theories on this. <laughs> that's so funny. I mean, yeah, I love a good burger, but yeah, they're definitely coming out of our asses. Like, and it's not making a ton of change. Um, but I love that you said all of that because yeah, it's so true. I mean, the, the new deal in itself was only implemented because there were so many freaking communists who were just demanding, you know, the most. And then you know, you don't get what you demand either, right? Like you demand the most and then you get the incremental, um, you know, negotiated, uh, you know, I guess people throwing scraps at you to, to be like, hey, if I give you this, are you going to put the pitchforks away basically? So, you know, we need the radicals out there um, talking about abolishing everything. Um, and then even with all of that pressure, all we're going to get is like the bigger cage, you know? Exactly. <laughs> like that's going to be the compromise. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, and I, I mean, I don't know if you saw it recently, like Obama came out and was like, you know, uh, saying something like defunding the police is going to lose people, right? Oh, um, and it's like, yeah. no, we have to say abolish. And then what we'll get is maybe a tiny bit of defunding. You know? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. I'm with you, Obama. Let's actually switch the slogan to abolish the police. And, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's do that. For Defunding sure. is actually too soft for me because I'm like, no, I want this gone. I want the like, I want yeah. the like, I want the prison system to be completely abolished. I want the carceral state gone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, what I really wanted to talk to you about was, um, you know, all of the BLM uprisings this summer and kind of, you know, I guess the reverberations throughout kind of the, the vegan community. Um, so, you know, after all the uprisings, um, which I mean, are, are still going on in a, a number of places, a number of ways. Um, but, you know, a number of vegan organizations put out statements of support. I'm wondering if you saw many of these as being largely performative and if you could speak to the dangers of performative allyship to both animals and other marginalized marginalized communities oh boy that is a wonderful question and yeah like i'm really glad that you asked that too um you know that like as soon as it was like black square tuesday yeah like up and down the internet i was like oh i am making an absolute list because this is performative <laughs> Like it's like so we're all going to put up black squares on our like social media profiles and some some groups didn't even bother with that some groups didn't even bother with the black square and I loved it I'm like wow like y'all are really showing yourselves mm -hmm. but for the ones who did and like you know as a show of solidarity with Black Lives Matter I definitely made a list and like to their credit some of them in implemented again incrementalist policies that mm -hmm. were more inclusive or that granted money to 
black and brown activists who were doing on the ground work in different communities. Um, I'm not going to name names because that would be that would be petty, like far pettier than I normally am. But um, but yeah, like some like some organizations did implement some very, very incremental changes. And I, I like, you know, while I appreciate those shifts, um, we do recognize that the real change actually comes when black and brown people are in the room where it happens, if you will. Mm -hmm. And like, and I didn't see anybody actually making that change because now that would have been far too radical. Mm -hmm. um, like actually making black and brown people primary decision makers and stakeholders is something that a lot of people are not prepared to do. People mm -hmm. actually giving up their individual position of power within an organization to make space for a more radical person is not something that most people are willing to do. Um, creating positions for black and brown people or more radical people, irrespective of their race, um, that's that's not something that a lot of people want to do. And And to my knowledge, in my own very limited investigations, um, without making too many waves, like, you know, I hadn't seen that. I hadn't seen that. So like very limited concessions from a handful of organizations, which I deeply, deeply appreciate and wholly approve of that, like, you know, that's great. But the majority of organizations did not do anything except for change a, like a black square on their social media um, and participate in Blackout Tuesday. And I think that that's really telling because mm -hmm. it's exactly what I expected to happen and lo and behold that is exactly what took place um so so yeah like that's that is that's what we are that's what we're looking at and like and and yeah like you know how does it like how how does performative allyship harm um people of color and other animals like the the proof is in the pudding once again like the the delicious soy-based um vegan pudding yeah. um like you know like this is like you know we're we're still looking at precisely the same conditions um, that we have been looking at for the past 10 years, for the past 20 years. Um, and I will name one name, like, you know, like, because it's the, it's always the most obvious name um, anyway, correct. But like, but PETA is like, you know, an, an organization, I'm never going to like win any awards from PETA. So whatever, like, you know, I think, like, <laughs> it's great. Like, you know, what? like, just like out of respect, I try not to step on people's toes, but like, but they make it really difficult. But like, you know, I noticed that they had like a black activist actually pen one of the blogs on their like website over the summer, um, I think in like mid June or July. Um, talking about the importance of solidarity with black and brown people um like you know and like and, and for animal rights organizations to actually step up their efforts i don't know how anybody can trust that though because what we've actually looked at is like you know in the past like let's just look at the, like a very short history of PETA over the past like you know like six or seven years we've seen PETA actually like putting on kkk outfits which like is like terrorizing to black and brown people and it's a joke like oh this is, it's so funny like you know it is meant tongue-in-cheek it's satirical and that's like well i don't know how you can actually make satire yeah. out of walking around in like you know in white hoods um like looking like mm -hmm. people who literally right now are actually terrorizing black and brown people not yeah. funny. Um, you know, we've got them like having like, you know, like tried a campaign of extortion against like poor people in the city of Detroit by like, you know, like promising to pay their water bills if and only if they would actually go vegan for like a sub predetermined amount of time. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you have PETA actually passing out like non-dairy ice cream um, to like actual police um, in a city that like during like like that same period was had actually like you know was was experiencing racial unrest because the police um, had committed another extrajudicial killing of a black person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like you you have like you know. PETA actually rewarding Sheriff Joe Arpaio in um, oh. in Arizona, like Maricopa County, um, for like feeding his prisoners like plant based food and doing so as a form of like you know as a form of punishment, as a form of retribution, yeah. along with making them wear pink um, undergarments and like you know and things like that, like you know and and PETA actually fawning all over this and like you know and mm-hmm. making their spokespeople like you know like people who have been aggressively anti black. Um, in their presentation and in their actions. Mm-hmm. Um, and even just as recently as this past year, like, you know what, during the Super Bowl, um, after having said nothing about Colin Kaepernick and his protest of kneeling, actually having an ad- advertisement that they wanted to um, share during the Super Bowl um, of animals around, like, you know, around the world actually, quote, taking a knee. Not in okay. solidarity with Black people, but, like, you know, but for, like, the purposes of animal rights. And so what is the material harm that's done to animals? You're alienating people over mm-hmm. and over and over and over and over again, repeatedly. Mm-hmm. Like, you're alienating Black and brown people. And once again, despite their best efforts at anti-Blackness, Black and brown people are still more likely to be vegan than our white counterparts. And that's what the data actually says. How much further along toward animal liberation would we be if we actually centered those very people that we seek to alienate over and over again mm-hmm. in our activism and made them the primary stakeholders mm-hmm. and recognizing that like the power that black people have as an electorate, as, like, as, as consumers, as social media users, over and over again in all of these spaces, how much farther along would we be if we actually gave them the resources that they need in order to be successful? But we can't do that because what we want is exactly the same system. We just want to remove somehow animals from it. And we can't be successful like that. We can't do that. That's not going to work. That's never going to work. Yeah. That's never going to work. You can't maintain a system of white supremacy and make that consistent with animal liberation. It can't happen. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely not. Yeah, and uh, Peter is just so unconscionable in so many ways. I mean, it's 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 like they just want to shock people with how unconscionable they are, um, and then draw attention to themselves that way and get more attention for animal liberation. It's incredibly harmful. Um, but yeah, we talked uh, with Menica and Isan um, on another episode about. Uh, you know, something along the lines, but, you know, um, the fact that there are so many um, vegan organizations that do present themselves as being pro-intersectional or anti-oppressive, um, but do not have any black and brown people on the board, uh, you know, actually making the decisions. Um, and then so, you know, inevitably they're going to make a whole bunch of, you know, really bad mistakes and things like that, and then um, have nobody to really hold them to account, right? Um, so I think that's a really big issue. Um, but, you know, also during the uprisings, right, uh, so there was that kind of iconic image going around of a BLM activist carrying a pig's head, um, and in general, a lot of memes, etc., calling cops pigs, and this is definitely not something that is unique to the BLM protests, like this happens a lot in anti-fascist circles, um, and other leftist circles that I'm in in Toronto as well. 
Um, but, you know, there were a lot of vegans who then chose to take that moment to call out Black af activists for using the word pig to denigrate cops. Um, and I would just love to hear you speak on that. Um, and in general, kind of around this idea of how you navigate speciesism in a racist world. Oh, boy, man, you are coming with you're coming correct with the questions today. Um, that's, <laughs> that's a really difficult one to talk about. Like, you know, yeah. I, like I do have a lot of sometimes conflicting thoughts about that. And um, mm -hmm. Like when when I first saw that, like, you know, I was reminded of the use of animals as cultural symbols that has existed for pretty much a millennia. Like, you know, we've, we've always seen animals used in one way or another as cultural symbols, um, living and or dead. Um, the use of lions or the way that we talk about lions when we are talking about like, you know, our canine teeth and like, you know, and how the mighty hunters that we are and apex predators and whatever have you, um, which is again, like an actual bastardization of the reality because what we know is that like female lions are actually the real hunters, male lions just sit around on their ass taking care of the kids all day. Um, <laughs> but I digress, like talking explicitly about that pig or specifically about that pig. Um, and using like you know the like the objectified pig as like a symbol of white supremacy while i don't condone it and never would i absolutely understand it mm -hmm. um because i like this is like and this is one of the ultimate symbols of white supremacy if you will the language of calling police officers pigs actually goes back so far as i was able to observe it linguistically to like England in I believe the 17th century, if I'm not correct. Um, but yeah, like that is where this originates from. And other people have like, you know, have actually like gleaned onto this um, and other like leftist groups. And so like the origin, the origin, once again, talking about origins, um, like, you know, of this actually lies with white supremacy itself. And so like the, like, you know, the objectification of that pig's head, whoever they were, when like you know when when they were separated from their head, like you know that that is actually like you know I understand that because like that is actually itself a symbol of like you know of of whiteness, mm -hmm. um, and like the anger and frustration that that people experience is very real. And so like what's really outstanding to me is like the that pig. Um, Again, and it, it breaks my heart because like we'll never know who that 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 person was um, of another species. But like that that pig actually embodies so much more than that moment than that photograph, mm -hmm. um, because what you see is the reobjectification of that pig over and over again. Because the people who were actually using it were exploiting that animal in a different way. They were actually using that animal as a weapon against mostly peaceful protesters. Because what do we know about the Black Lives Matter movement? What do we know about BLM marches and protests and demonstrations that have been happening all around, like all around all 50 states and had expanded into 18 different countries? The New York Times said it was the largest protest movement in the world, historically. Um, <clears throat> nine, over 90% of those protests have been completely peaceful. Mm -hmm. But people decided that they will use this moment, that they will weaponize this moment and this image to show what is wrong or what is bad about Black Lives Matter because they're using their personal feelings of racism toward Black people. Mm -hmm. That's what they want to express. And they put all of those feelings into that pig as their own cultural symbol. Mm -hmm. And so 
Am I angry? Am I disappointed? Am I saddened by the use of a pig's head in our own protest? Absolutely. It should never happen. It definitely shouldn't happen. But the reason that people have decided to make that their rallying cry Mm -hmm. to show the violence of Black people, Mm -hmm. that is actually, to me, a far more important issue to interrogate because that does not actually represent the majority of Black Lives Matter movements. Realistically speaking, all of the people on, like, you know, at any protest are actually wearing leather. They go home and they're eating hamburgers. They're eating fried chicken. They're eating hot dogs. They're eating animals and exploiting animals in a hundred thousand different ways every single day before that protest and every day after that protest. But we didn't actually care about that. We actually cared about the use of this one pig. Why? Because that was something novel to Mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. That is something that we can look at and say, look at the grotesqueness, look at the violence of these people. And Mm -hmm. that weaponization actually just exploits that animal in a different way. And so once again, we come back to the tools of white supremacy and how like, you know, and, and how like, racial racialized speciesism is like is is the real system that we are living in because these things cannot be divorced from one another yeah it's speciesist to use a pig's head it's speciesist to use any animal whatsoever um but actually like using that speciesism as a weapon against people who are like seeking their own liberation i think it's far more telling and that's actually like you know that's the reality of what many of these individuals and activist organizations have been doing it just really shows their contempt for black people mm-hmm. because really like you know what clean up your own backyard because we didn't actually have police that were terrorizing black and brown people and occupying territories all over the United States and around the world, we probably would be having a very different conversation. This Mm -hmm. is the reality that we're living in right now. The fact that this objectified pig is like, you know, is a symbol is like that goes back to like what white people have been doing to black people since the beginning of this nation that I was born in. Mm-hmm. And like, and unless we can actually face our own histories with open eyes and with authentic engagement, we're never actually going to be successful as a movement. But we want to hide that. We want to minimize and trivialize the mm-hmm. ways that white supremacy has influenced our perceptions of like human exceptionalism or our perceived exceptionalism as humans. Um, Because in order to like, if we do recognize that, then we have to recognize our own complicity. And that again, is very, very hard work that we do not want to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. It really just felt like um, incredibly inappropriate, especially for vegans who don't often actually talk about the connections between, you know, white supremacy and speciesism um, to kind of hijack this moment to make it about the pig or make it about the animals and things like that. Um, Yeah, it just felt incredibly inappropriate. Um, And I I mean, I agree. Um, Actually, Menika from Noosh Design Co. just did a really beautiful design, um, I think last week. Um, It was a pig and, um, you know, she wrote a really great caption about um, you know, how wonderful pigs are and that, you know, we shouldn't compare them to cops and things like that. Um, but that was obviously, you know, months after the heat of the moment, right? I just, it's really interesting, you know, what moments people choose to insert this kind of narrative, you know, into the picture. Um, it's, it's incredibly telling. Um, 
And uh, yeah, I think it is just like a really difficult discussion. I mean, I, most of the people that I hear calling cops pigs around me in Toronto are white <laughs> as well, right? Um, and like, we can't, you know, like, I think we can do work around that um, as as anti-speciesists. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is, it, it is, you know, incredibly symbolic and um yeah, I think for people like obviously like you can't you can't walk around with a picture of like a cop's head, you know, hanging or something like that, right? So it's like you're you're trying to show your rage and you're trying to show how much, you know, you're not going to take it, right? Um and I just yeah, it's it is a really difficult conversation, but you know, thank you for for sharing your thoughts on that. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um yeah, so we're kind of uh running uh, it's like been an hour and 10 minutes. I don't know how much time you have. I, I had this last point that I would love to talk about querying animal liberation. Let's do it. We'll I wrap that up quick. Yeah, that's just, it's it's a, it's too huge to talk about, but um, I loved your lecture on it. Um, yeah, I just maybe quickly, um, could you just speak a bit about the importance of moving away from this kind of cis heteropatriarchy in the way that we talk about and show up for animals? Yeah, like um, what I can do, like, you know, like one way to wrap this up very quick is to talk to you about the work of Patrice Jones, because Patrice is phenomenal. Um, like she runs Vine Sanctuary, um, like along mm -hmm. with like a team of other people, but like Patrice has written about this quite extensively. Um, even the phrase queering animal liberation is part of like Patrice's larger project, mm -hmm. um, like about like, you know, the queering of animal liberation and the necessity of it as well. Um, in addition to like, it's, it's, it's almost like, it's almost comical, like in addition to like, you know, the data that we have that supports the fact that like black and brown people actually go uh, vegan at rates far more than our like white counterparts, like queer people actually are like, you know, are quite vegan ourselves. Um, mm -hmm. Like, you know what, like, I, like, if I run into a radical queer person, like, you know, what, it, it's, and especially if they're wearing Doc Martens, that's a big giveaway, like it's a 50% chance that that person is vegan or vegetarian. Um, and so like, there's already a lot of commonality. Queer people pick up on these things remarkably, remarkably quick. Um, we're really good at that. And I'm so grateful for it. I'm so glad for it. Um, and I'm talking about queer people of every race. Um, but yeah, like, you know, like I, I will absolutely refer you to Patrice's work. Like, you know, when I, when, when I think about the queering of animal liberation, one of the things that comes to mind is actually something that we talked about earlier, and that is the manifestation of family and what it looks like. Um, when we actually recognize the non-traditional family structures that exist outside of the cisgender, heteropatriarchal, nuclear family construct, um, like, you know, when we actually start thinking more radically about who family is and who it can and or should include um, for queer people, that inevitably extends to other animals as well. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that, like, you know, I can't adequately express my grief as a queer person, like for a romantic partner or an intimate partner who um, is experiencing hardship or worse, died, um, because it's not recognized as a valid relationship by the state. That is like, you know, that's one of the ways in which queer people are marginalized in our society. Um, and similarly, when I can't like, you know, express my grief at the passing of a companion animal as a family member, 
Like, mm-hmm. you know, like, and even I feel like the phrase companion animal is incredibly limiting itself. Like, you know, if those, those persons are part of my family one way or the other. Um, I don't even get to take time off from work. I have people saying incredibly insensitive things like, oh, you can just get another one. Mm-hmm. Those, like, you know, and these are not limited to dogs and cats. Like, you know what? I have people that I talk to who, like, run sanctuaries with rabbits um, or, like, you know, who have large families um, of rats um, or other rodents and talk about their like rat family members um, that have long passed away mm-hmm. with such memory and like such vivid memory and such color um, in the way that they talk about them. I feel like they're right there in the room. And mm-hmm. that's something that's stolen away from us. That's something that like, so when we actually raise the bar for inclusiveness for human communities whether we want to or not we raise the bar for everyone like you know we raise the bar for animals across the board because like a rising tide really does lift all boats um and when we like when we talk with like you know when we talk with such like vicious bigotry um about queer people um, like, you know, and especially about sexual violence. And this is something that, like, you know, that, that you probably heard me talk about in, in, mm-hmm. my, in that lecture. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that impacts animals as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talk about, like, same-sex attraction as, like, a form of, like, a- as bestiality or comparative mm-hmm. to bestiality. You've seen conservative, once again, the conservatives had it again. Like, yep. you know, conservative, like, legislators um, from across the political universe, not exclusively in the United States, it's always, oh, like, you know what, it's like, it's compared to bestiality, like, you know, same-sex attraction and same-sex acts. Mm-hmm. Um, and we completely ignore the fact that, like, you know, we actually engage in actual acts of bestiality and create exemptions for it in order to impregnate other animals so that we can perpetuate the system of animal agriculture. We do this over and over again on every farm every day across the world. And this is like, and this is the reality. And so like, you know, and and the, the recognition of like, or the lack of recognition for that versus the perceived bestiality of two people who are consenting adults being attracted to one another that is just like unconscionable and yet we allow it we allow it over and over again and that that type of sexual violence is inexcusable um so so yeah like the necessity of moving away from a cisgender heteropatriarchal model of animal activism um is very real mm-hmm. and like you know and becoming a more inclusive place for queer people like it's just like like it like it it, it defies description is because it's so necessary Mm-hmm. Um, and yet you have people who are so resistant to it that they don't even want to do something as trivial as like acknowledge someone's pronouns if they are a trans person mm-hmm. um, or like a gender nonconforming person. Um, that's so difficult for them, um, you know, and I, like and I take that into account every time like I see those people like on, on the Internet, like, you know, mm-hmm. having absolutely no trouble using proper pronouns or what we think are proper pronouns for other other animals. And it's like, oh, that's your bigotry coming out. Yeah. And that's alienating to queer people. And if you think that we are, we don't recognize that, boy, oh boy, if you like, you know, if you actually, if, if you actually decided to like welcome queer people into animal spaces, um, like authentically and genuinely um, as, as our, as our real and authentic selves, we would have completely transformed this. And mm-hmm. again, like, you know, the, the comparisons to like, you know, or the, 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 
the use of queerness um, as like, you know, as, as a, as a fear mongering tactic um, or as like, you know, coded language to, to scare people away from animal rights from like, you know, legislators is real too. Um, during the, my white meat lecture, like there's actually like, you know, there's an article that I, I share a screen capture where a legislator was saying like, you know what, they're going to like, like animal rights organizations are run by lesbian terrorists <laughs> and they're also communists. Yeah, and this is a real thing. Like they're lesbian, <laughs> communist terrorists, and that's who's running the animal rights organizations. And they're going to come for your fur after Whoa. they stop you from eating meat. That's what they're going to do. So the the use of or the invocation of queer identity as another, like you know, as another front in the culture war, to mm -hmm. in order to preserve the project of animal exploitation. Like, you know, that's just another way. And, and we like, and we don't bat an eyelash. Like the mainstream community doesn't bat an eyelash. We don't, we don't recognize, like, you know, we, we talk about solidarity, we talk a good game, mm -hmm. but we don't recognize it in practice. And that's what we need to do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I'll link those resources below. I'll link to Pratice Jones. I'll link to your lecture so people can, um, you know, dig deeper into that. I think all of that is so interesting. And the conversation around sexual violence, I think, is so interesting. So, yeah, thank you so much for sharing all of your thoughts today. This was such a wonderful conversation. Um, I don't know if you got my email about this, but I know that, uh, you know, very often you kind of issue an honorarium in favor of donating it to a vegan organization or charity. So um, we do have some funds that we are able to donate. So if you wanted to choose um, an organization to, um, you know, forward that money to, that would be really oh, wonderful. Let's give it away. Let's find somebody to give that to. All right. <laughs> I love awesome. it. I love it. Mutual aid. I love, yeah, it. I love it. You absolutely. are fantastic for doing that. You're a remarkable example of it. And I can't tell you how grateful I am that you are here. Like you, like you say that you're like a fan of mine. I'm just fangirling out over here because I think that your contributions are so, so important. Oh my goodness. I, I'm fangirling out over here now. Like, just... No, I mean it. I really mean it. Like, you know, oh I, I, like I just like it, it fills me with joy when I see you posting on online and it really like, it gives me a sense of validation to see that like, you know what, five or six years ago, I felt like I was very, very alone and I don't feel like that now. Mm -hmm. I feel like there are so many more people who are just fed up and like, and ready to make a radical change. And one of the most mm -hmm. radical changes that we can do, we can do it every day, multiple times a day, if you're not intermittent fasting, is yeah. to like incorporate veganism and like a, like a praxis of animal liberation into our, like, you know, into our leftist ideologies. And like, and the mm -hmm. fact that you're out there doing the work, capital T, tap, capital W, TM, um, is like, you know, like that is vastly, vastly encouraging to me. And I cannot thank you enough for it. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I feel like we can just go back and forth fangirling so much. No. I feel like you've had, you've played such a big role in, in getting people there, you know, like it's true five, six years ago, there weren't that many people talking about this. Right. And no. you, you played such a big role in kind of inspiring this movement. So oh, they cancel you. me every week though, you know, like, Pardon? I said they cancel me every week though. You got to watch out for that. Oh yeah. Well, they're going to cancel us all. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. So I guess just before we go, do you want to shout out where people can find you maybe on social media, on Twitter and, and whatnot? Oh yeah, like my Twitter handle is thoughts and prayers. That's thoughts, T-H-O-T-S and prayers. 
Um, you can find me on Instagram at uh, the underscore Christopher underscore Sebastian. It was not very imaginative. And you can find me on Facebook. If you just look for like some black person named Christopher Sebastian, I'm going to come up. I'm shit posting all over the place. That's like, that's my MO. Like, this is why I don't feel like I make very valuable contributions. I just get online and like, and I, I just wild out. And so that's, that's well, And then I just share your posts. So. <laughs> <laughs> Um, great. So yeah, just, just thank you again for coming on the show. Um, this was really, really wonderful. Um, I hope everyone really takes a lot from this conversation and, um, yeah, we'll see everyone in a, a few weeks. All right. Thank you. Cheers.